Okay, this morning, as I look at our passage in Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 23, I want to tell you this morning is for anyone who's facing a storm right now. Anyone facing a storm in their lives. And we're going to bring out two big truths that we see in God's word here. One is that Jesus is powerful over the storms without. He's also powerful over the storms within. I pray that encourages you this morning to look to him. We're going to be primarily in Matthew 8, but we're also going to be looking at Mark 4 and 5 and Luke 8 a little bit. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. Otherwise, you're going to be busy. But I would encourage you to go there later and read those. I want to start by looking at the fact that Jesus is powerful over the storms without. Verse 23 says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Mark tells us that they took him into the boat just as he was. That's an interesting phrase. You might say, well, how was he? And whichever gospel you read this account in, we learned that he was absolutely exhausted. He was dog tired after a long, busy day of ministry. We'll see that even in our own passage. What body of water were they setting out onto Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee. It's also called a lake in Scripture. It's fresh water. It's small. It's only 13 miles by 8 miles. In fact, one nearby that you might compare it to, Lake Tahoe. Sea of Galilee is only about two-thirds as large as Lake Tahoe. And it's only 141 feet deep. But keep that in mind as we go on. Verse 24 says, Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. It's a great storm. Obviously, water is coming into the fishing boat. It's probably a fishing boat just big enough for 12 or so guys. Okay, water's coming in. Mark calls it a furious squall. Furious squall. One of the gospel writers uses the Greek word seismos, which you're probably familiar with this week when you think and pray about Turkey. It's related to seismology earthquakes. It's not that there was an earthquake here, but the shaking on the Sea of Galilee could be compared to that. It was that intense. We already told you it was a a shallow lake. And I think about that. I think about where Carolyn and I and our families grew up just south of Lake Erie in Ohio. It is the shallowest of the Great Lakes. It's only about 62 feet deep average Uh, compared to Lake Superior, which is like 483 feet deep. But it's very dangerous because of that. Because it's so shallow, it doesn't take long for that water to stir up quickly. You you think about it like this. I could stand on the edge of a pool or even get three or four guys pushing on the edge of a large pool, and it'd take a while to get that thing with any waves in it. But if I I have water in this little bowl and start shaking it, it, it gets stirred up real quick. That's part of what made the the Sea of Galilee a sometimes dangerous place to work. In fact, Luke tells us they were in great danger. They were in great danger. Back to Matthew 8, 24. But he was asleep. Jesus was asleep. 
Mark tells us he was in the stern of the boat sleeping on a cushion. Anybody know what the stern is? Nope. It's the rear. That's okay. We live in Arizona. We live in Arizona, right? We don't do a lot of boating here. It's the back. <laughs> now, Luke tells us there's raging waves. Mark said it's swamped by waves. And think about this. He's sleeping. He's, he is not in a room on the Caribbean Princess cruise ship. Okay, this is likely a little fishing boat. He's, he's probably getting wet. Right? So you think about how tired he must have been after that day of ministry. Verse 25, they, they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord. We are perishing. Luke has him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Now, to understand how bad this is, we got to think about who is saying this. Many of these disciples are fishermen by experience. This is where they work all the time, right? Now, passengers might exaggerate the conditions on the water, but when the professionals start saying we're in trouble, you, you listen up, right? You know it's bad. Mark adds that they're, they're saying to Jesus, don't you care if we drown? You see what's going on there? They're starting to doubt his caring love. For them, because this, this storm is upon them. Verse 26, he said to them, why are you afraid? And you put yourself in their shoes and you think their fleshly side's kind of like, uh, look around while you were sleeping, a little something came up out here. That's why we're afraid. But what would Jesus say to them? He said, oh, you of little faith. Why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? It's that Greek word oligopistoi. It came up in Matthew 6 when he was talking about worry. Oh, you of little faith. Why? Because all three of the gospel writers include some version of the statement he had said to them, let us go over to the other side. That was his plan. That's what he said. They should have rested in what he said. And he's dealing with them on something that you and I all deal with, right? That battle between faith and fear in our hearts. How many of us know that battle? It's no, no coincidence that over and over in here, it tells us, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. Matthew Henry put it this way. He said, he does not chide them for disturbing him with their prayers, but for disturbing themselves with their fears. They were right to go to him. They, they were wrong to be so disturbed by their own fears. And, and here's the deal, as one man put it, that battle between faith and fear in here, they don't dwell together. Either faith chases out fear or fear chases out faith. And we got to decide which one we're going to choose when that battle rages. Now, I look at these guys. I don't know about you, but I am so thankful for his patient perseverance with these men because I know I need the same thing in my life. How many of you would, would relate to that? And I think about his faithfulness, and I think about a couple things. One is that he is too 
loving to leave us alone in our storms. He's too loving to leave his children alone in their storms. Listen to what Hebrews 13, 5 says. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you know that? Believer in Jesus Christ, I will never leave you nor forsake you, he says. But, and this is the uncomfortable side, he's also too holy to leave us where we're at in our spiritual journey because it's often in the storms of life that he will challenge us. He will challenge us for our faith in him to grow. We see this plainly when Lazarus died, that he works in trials to this end. You remember Lazarus was sick and instead of rushing there, Jesus waited. And one of the things he said to his disciples in John eleven fourteen. As Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. You say, what? Why? For your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. It's often in our storms that he's challenging us to grow in our faith. Think about what James says. James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Some of us like what are you smoking, James? Because that's not my first reaction when I come to a trial, right? Count it all joy. Why? He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I wonder how many times on the other side of this event did they look back and say, oh, yeah, he got me through that. He'll get me through this. And then he'll get me through this, right? What happened? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. Mark tells us, he said, quiet, be still. The Greek can literally say, be, be muzzled. The, the wind and the waves, right? The cause and the effect. Quiet, be still. Matthew tells us there was a great calm. Now, any of you who have ever lived by a body of water know that normally when a storm blows away, it takes a long time for that water to settle down, right? You don't want to go out there for a while. That's not what happened here. It says there was a great calm. That lake was instantly like a sheet of glass. Mark tells us the men were terrified. Now they're looking at him. <laughs> and I think about this. They've never seen anything like this in all their fishing days. It says they're terrified. I think about that, that holy terror they have in that moment. And I think about another moment in Chronicles of Narnia where some, some folks encounter Aslan who, who represents Jesus. And, and C.S. Lewis says they were as afraid as you can be when you're happy. And as happy as you can be when you're afraid. <laughs> I think that's where these guys were at this moment. And we hear their own words. Verse 27 says the men marveled. Thing, what sort of man is this? That even winds and sea obey him. What a great question. What kind of man is this? Because think about this. The, the same one who is totally exhausted from a long day of ministry 
is exalted in power over all creation. The mystery of God in flesh right in front of them on full display. What kind of man is this? No wonder they said that. D.A. Carson said, readers of this gospel know the answer to that question. He is the virgin-born Messiah who has come to redeem his people from their sins and whose mission is to fulfill God's redemptive purposes. I think about his power that day, and I think about the fact that many of his disciples likely knew their, their scriptures from the Old Testament, right? And I think they maybe later would look back and think about passages like Psalm 65, 5 where it says, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the people, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your sign. I think about Psalm 139.10. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Are you in the middle of a storm right now in your life? Which is winning out in your heart today, fear or faith? Are you looking to Jesus How is he challenging us to grow in this storm? I want to invite someone up right now to share a story of a storm that he's been walking through. Share how God has been faithfully leading him through his own storm. Let's let's welcome Russ up here. Good morning, church. Thank you, Pastor. So some of you some of you may know, about three weeks ago, I uh, slipped on some ice, and for three weeks now, there's been a chain of events, miracles, really, in my life. And so I just want to take a few minutes to talk about those miracles. It was a Sunday morning, and I... Uh, I was going up to um, Thumb Butte, and I slipped on some ice, and I landed right here, my my face on a rock, probably about the size of that monitor right there. And I don't know how long I was out, but I was unconscious. Um, And when I woke up, my head was buzzing. Finally got my act together, uh, got into the car, and somehow I, I meant to go home. But somehow I ended up in the parking lot at YRMC, uh, right in front of the emergency room. I don't know how I got there, but I know it was God-ordained. It was a miracle. So I went inside, and they immediately did a CAT scan on my brain because they were going to check for some bleeding. And I came back, and there was no blood, no bleeding, nothing in my brain, which is a miracle because I hit that rock really hard. My face was swollen. But what they did find as an incidental was a tumor in my brain. 
which I would have never known about unless I slipped because I had no symptoms whatsoever. So they immediately admitted me, and I just remember not remembering anything that happened. My, my memory was just foggy. I was so scared. So I'm in the, I'm in the hospital room and uh, didn't sleep very well that night. They had me on steroids to reduce the swelling in my brain. And uh, I just remember the next morning, miracle number two or three, um, waking up and looking in the mirror, and no joke, I didn't have one sign of an injury on this on my face. No swelling, no cuts, no bruising, nothing. It was gone. It's almost like God was saying, that had nothing to do with my plan. It was this. So, um, they did, they did some MRIs and uh, additional CAT scans to make sure that um, they were right in their um, prognosis. They felt it was a slow-growing, benign tumor. Um, and it happens, to, it happens to be at the very top of your skull. And they confirmed that without the pathology report. So Wednesday, they had me scheduled for surgery. And... Uh, I remember Tuesday night, midnight was the cutoff when I could, I could eat, because you can't eat for like 12 hours before the surgery. And uh, I didn't think about it until later, but I was um, binge watching the Food Network before, <laughs> which I probably shouldn't have done. Oh my goodness, I just remember one show I was watching, they were making these hamburgers, and they were so thick and juicy, I was just salivating, I had like, it was like 11.30, I had 30 minutes to order my food. And I said, I want to get a hamburger, but I couldn't open my jaw. So I couldn't eat it. So I ordered a grilled cheese sandwich, some fries, and a, and a ketchup. So I'm sitting at the foot of the bed, <laughs> and I hear, it's all quiet, it's almost midnight. And I hear this skipping coming down. It sounded like someone skipping down the hallway. And I thought, God, is my brain that messed up? Am I hearing things? And uh, I thought maybe it's a, uh, maybe a patient escaped, maybe um, someone won the employee of the quarter and they're happy. No, this guy comes in. I'm at the, I'm at the very foot of my bed eating. This guy comes in, he's, he looks like a doctor, he's from his outfit, and he literally scoots right next to me and just kind of nudges me over a little bit. And I'm thinking, this is so odd, but come on in. And it happened to be my neurosurgeon. He was going to be the guy that was going to drill through my brain, over my, my, my skull into my brain. And uh, he was so excited. I just remember he had this childlike enthusiasm. It was, like, it was like it was Christmas morning for him. And he knew what the present was. He knew what was inside that gift. He was so excited. I guarantee you he didn't sleep the night before. And I thought it was so interesting. And then I realized as he's explained to me what's going to happen, he reaches over and starts taking a couple of my fries. <laughs> and then he dips it into the ketchup and he's eating. So here I am having partaking in a meal with my surgeon. And I thought, I <laughs> so I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to, He's comfortable with me, so I'm going to be. I'm going to make some jokes. I'm going to be humorous, so we can kind of bond before he, uh, um, yeah, before he cuts me open. So um, 
he said, now, Russ, uh, it's a really small little saw. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to slice you right here, open it up. I'm going to saw through. And then I'm just going to open up like a window and go in there and get the tumor. So I tried two jokes. First one was, I said to him, you mean like the game operation? And, and, <laughs> and he didn't laugh. I don't know if he didn't know the game. And then he continued talking about the saw. And I said, if you happen to lose the saw, I have a chainsaw in the back of my car. And again, during the headlights, no reaction from him whatsoever. So I was quiet the remainder of the time. <laughs> Next morning, I went in there, and I was, was so blessed because this guy, he was so meticulous. He was the kind of guy that was not going to miss anything. He would take more out if he needed to. Um, and I, as, as he was sitting next to me, I forgot to say this in the first service, when he was sitting next to me, I thought, this guy looks so familiar to me. And then it dawned on me after he left, he reminded me of the painter Bob Ross. Was that his name? <laughs> you remember him? And he'd be like, okay, we're going to do a little. And as he's describing to me what he's going to do to my brain, I just I, I could envision Bob Ross, and he's like, well, we're just going to cut here and here and do a little dab here. We'll use a two-inch knife here. And so got into the surgery the next day, and uh, another miracle was that months before this happened to me, I was diagnosed with hemolytic anemia. So my red blood cells break down faster than normal. Normally, you have red blood cells that live for about 120 days, gives you energy, heat. Mine live about 70 days. And the miracle here is that I needed to have additional platelets with my blood type ready, or it wouldn't clot. I'd have bleeding issues. And they had my exact blood type platelet plenty in the hospital ready. I mean, God had this plan from the very beginning. So they did the surgery. I woke up, and an hour later, I was in my hospital room again. I was working. I was on the computer working. And uh, they were going to release me the next day, uh, but they felt one more day of observation would be probably um, appropriate. And then there's one more miracle. So as you can see, God's working this the whole time. Let me back up real fast on something else. God had this lined up with the hemolytic anemia. Um, I had had many blood tests, which were in the record at YRMC. But also, because I was always feeling foggy and tired and, and fatigued, I was going through the, uh, a cognitive behavioral therapy for about a year prior. And what they do with that therapy is they kind of, they do brain games with you. And I think God is, was really preparing me for this moment because I've recovered so fast. Um, I, I, I'm a songwriter. I went back on the piano when I got home and I played music. So the last miracle is this. So they took the, the tumor and they sent it off to Mayo Clinic. And there's three grades with the type of tumor that they took out of my head, <laughs> my brain. Um, the lowest grade is a benign, slow-growing one. Many people have it, and they die never knowing they have it. it. Grows right at the very top of the skull. 
And then on the other side of the spectrum is a grade three, and that is a malignant tumor which metastasizes through the body. Very low chance of survival. I was diagnosed with a grade two in the middle. And the miracle here is that a grade two, more than not, will become malignant at some point. But they caught it early enough. So as we look down the line, if I had not slipped, I would have never gotten checked. It could have been the next day it turned malignant. And now here I am. I've been at church. I was at church the next, the next week after I was, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, other than a, a little, some sutures and a little bit of pain, I really don't have any, any discomfort. Um, I do have a... I can't smell or taste anything, <laughs> um, but that's minor. Um, and other than that, I do have some numbness and I do have some fogginess in my brain, but I think it's just that I'm recovering. So what we need to remember from this is that, yeah, we're talking about the miracles in the Bible, but the miracles happen today, right? Not just on the dusty streets in Galilee. They happen here. And I guarantee you, and we all know this, that before God even formed the foundation of the earth, he already knew what was going to happen to me three weeks ago. And he knows what's happening with you as well. So uh, from here on, I'm just going, they're, they're probably going to have to do uh, um, surgery, additional surgery to make sure they got everything out, as well as some radiation. But if you look at it, it could have been a lot worse. And that's truly a miracle. So, thank you, Pastor. Thank you. I think what, what I love most about that story is how God has walked faithfully with you through that. Jesus is powerful over the storms without. He's also powerful over the storms within. And some of us know those storms. We know those storms can feel even darker and even greater for that, I want you to look at Matthew 8, 28. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him. Now, Mark and Luke focus on only one of these guys. They'll only talk about one guy. Perhaps he was the more severe. But some have said, see, the Bible contradicts itself. You know what that is? It's what we call an apparent contradiction. If you give a, just a little bit of thought to all of these apparent contradictions, you can usually find the answer. Matthew Henry put it bluntly, if there were two, there were one. The other authors just chose to focus on one. It's just like if I were to write a newspaper article about Philadelphia quarterback Jalen Hurts and him going out and having a good time in, in Phoenix yesterday, but I didn't happen to mention all 20 of the other people with him, you would understand why, right? Because I chose to focus on one. What, what does Matthew tell us about these men? Two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs. Mark tells us they, they lived in the tombs. From a Jewish perspective, you're looking at a place of uncleanness, and all of us realize right away that's a, a place of death. And I believe we see in this passage Satan's desire when he attacks all of us made in God's image, whether it's through his direct means or the, the means of his minions, the, the demons. Listen, Satan is a murderer. John eight forty four says he's a murderer from the beginning. 
So he loves to, to whisper hopelessness, discouragement, even suicidal thoughts. Because Jesus came to bring life and life to the full. And oh, how he hates Jesus. Luke tells us for a long time, man had not worn clothes or lived in a house. Matthew says he was so fierce that no one could pass that way. The, the rage and power going on here kept people away. Luke says many times the demon seized him, though it was kept under guard. Mark said no one could bind him anymore. He, he would tear chains apart and, and tear irons off of his legs. And listen to what Luke tells us. It drove him into solitary places. That's the second thing I want you to be aware of. Satan loves to isolate us. He loves to isolate us in our relationship with God. He loves to isolate us from each other because the triune relational God made us to need relationships. Mark tells us that night and day among the tombs, this, this man was crying out, cutting himself with stones. What a picture of ultimate angst, right? To actually pick up a sharp rock and, and cut into his flesh. Listen, Satan loves to harm us or to get us to harm ourselves for we are made in God's image. Mark says, no one was strong enough to subdue him. And I, I, I like that because it's great foreshadowing for what's about to happen. Mark also tells us the man saw Jesus from a distance, ran, fell on his feet in front of him, and shouted at the top of his voice. Matthew verse 29. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Mark has them saying, Son of the Most High God. I like what Theophylact wrote here. He said, while the men in the boat are doubting what kind of man this is, that even the winds and the sea obey him, the demons come to tell them. The demons know well who Jesus is. And there's something to ponder here. Matthew Henry wrote, It is not knowledge but love which distinguishes saints from devils. Have I gone beyond knowledge to faith and love in the Savior? Because the, the demons know, right? Matthew tells us, they're, they're fearful before him. Look, look what they say in verse 29. Have you come here to torment us before the time? In Mark, they say, swear to God that you won't torture me. Jesus says, what is your name? Mark, the answer, my name is Legion, for we are many. This was not just one demon. It was many. Do you know how many soldiers were in a Roman legion? 6,000, 6,000 out. We don't know if this is exact or not, where there's literally 6,000, but we do know at the very least, he's saying there were a lot of demons tormenting these two men. And you know what I love? That that massive group of demons cringe and beg at the feet of the one who is far above all rule and authority and power. 
They're trembling. Swear to God that you won't torture me. I love that they're begging. I also know that they know what he's got in store for them. They know. Luke says they begged him repeatedly not to throw them into the abyss. Verse 30 says, Now a herd of many pigs. Mark tells us 2,000. That's a lot of bacon. <laughs> 2,000 pigs was, was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. Just a word. Just a word to this legion of demonic powers. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. What a scene. All these pig carcasses floating in the, the Sea of Galilee. Somebody was reminding me in the lobby that was probably the first instance of deviled ham on record. <laughs> what a scene. But it, his power reminds me of what the centurion had said to him in Matthew chapter 8. You remember he had a servant sick at home and he was affirming his faith that all Jesus had to say was a word. And the centurion said in Matthew 8, 9, I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes. You think about the number of demons here, you, you realize that Jesus had more power than countless centurions with just a word. We also see what I believe the demons would have driven these men to if Jesus had not shown up. I believe it's likely they would have driven them to their death. Verse 33 shows the reaction of the herdsmen who, who saw it all. They, they fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. What did they see there in addition to, to a sea filled with floating pigs? Luke 8, 35. The people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind. What a contrast from where these men had lived before. You know what it makes me think about? It makes me think about Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, a verse we just shared with a neighbor. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's like he's taking the most extreme example and showing us if, if he can bring freedom to them, he can bring freedom to you. He can bring freedom to me. Now, how did the people react to this? Did they, did they celebrate and say, Jesus, stay, we want to throw a feast for you? You might expect that. No. Luke tells us they were afraid. I could paraphrase what's in their mind. We, we, we've seen the power of these demons, right? How powerful is this guy? They, they, they were afraid. It says, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. You know what's really sad about that? Jesus accepted their request. It says, Luke says he got into the boat and returned. 
of what they missed out on. What were they afraid of? I believe his power. Some have pointed to the, the lucrative pig business they had going there. And you know, at least from a Jewish perspective, pigs were unclean. Yeah. Right? And here's the sad truth some, some, some believe is going on here. They preferred their swine to the Savior just as some prefer their sin to the Savior. If you don't know Jesus, I want you to think long and hard about why you haven't put your faith in him. Because sometimes there, there's intellectual questions. And if you have those, I'd encourage you, don't stop at the question. Seek the answer. They're there. But sometimes our real objections are not intellectual at all. They're moral. We know when Jesus comes, he comes not only as Savior, but as the powerful Lord. And when the powerful Lord shows up, things must change in our lives. And sometimes we don't want that change. We'll say, I'll take the sin over the Savior. It's worth a thought. What about the man himself? Verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone, this is in Luke begged that he might be with Jesus. I want to go with you, Jesus. Of course he does. He set him free from everything that tormented him. But Jesus sent him away. Why? Saying, verse 39 in Luke 8, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Mark tells us everyone marveled. Can you imagine those conversations across dinner tables? This man at peace sharing what Jesus had done for him. Herbert Lockyer said Jesus found a demoniac but left behind an evangelist. And I think about that and I think about how much so many of us long to go to heaven to be with Jesus. You ever have that longing? But Jesus says, not yet. I've got a mission for you. You go and tell your neighbors how much God has done for you. You go and tell your neighbors how much I've done for you, he says. Listen, wherever you're at this morning, if you feel the storm within, whispers of death, isolation, angst, pain, I encourage you, to bring it to the feet of the master who can set you free. Come to him in faith. Receive him as your savior and Lord. Now I think about this and I think about for those of us who are Christians, we're mostly aware, most of us, that we cannot be possessed by demons. The Holy Spirit lives here. Address is taken. But we can be harassed. We can be oppressed. And I think about how often he, he seeks to work in more subtle ways. And I want to focus on one. I believe he's working hard in our world to bring isolation. Isolation between us and God. Isolation between us and each other. And I believe he even works towards that end within the church. I don't need to fellowship with people. I just watch on a screen. And sometimes it's through... Broken relationships where, where hurt happens. Galatians 5.20, we're, we're looking at the list of the flesh, and, and, and sometimes Satan cooperates with our flesh. 
right after Paul talks about sorcery, something most of us would say, I never touch that because I know where that leads. It leads to darkness. You know what else it includes in Galatians 5.20? These relational sins, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. And it's so important that, that we are aware that he is looking to do that even within the body of Christ to separate us. I think about that and I think about sometimes the walls that that we build to protect ourselves from another person do more damage to our own souls than that other person ever will. And Satan rejoices as we separate. God longs to bring healing to our relationships. If we have a broken relationship, he wants us to pursue peace with everyone, Hebrews 12. He wants us to do what James says in 4, 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Don't let him win in this battle of isolation. I want to give you an example. I'm going to call two friends up here, Jay and Robin. They are not husband and wife. They're, they're friends at the church next door though they'll, they'll be the first to tell you that friendship has not always been easy. Now, I'm sure in all the history of the church next door, these are the only two people who have ever ruffled each other's feathers. I'm sure there's nothing here for the rest of us to learn from. Wink, wink. Okay, I, I want you guys to share. We, we had a meeting a couple Fridays ago. And uh, before we share what God did at that meeting and even leading up to it, I want you guys to share a little bit about how you were each feeling before the meeting, maybe a little bit of what had happened, what you were going through. Who, does anybody want to go first? There you go. Okay. Well, let me give you a little bit of context because this all kind of was happened back in October at the chili cook-off. And... I should be mad at you. <laughs> you're, the, you're the one that got this. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> so anyway, um, at the chili cook-off, uh, I did something thinking I was helping and didn't realize that I'd stepped on Robin's toes. And, and I was brought, um, that something was brought to my attention shortly after that I had done so. So I'd say for the next three months, I just kind of tried to uh, um, prove my innocence over time. I said, what have I done wrong? I haven't done anything wrong. So, so I guess for the last three months, it would come back, you know, you go to bed and you think about something, you don't think about something, and then you think about it. And it stirs all kinds of emotions in you. And, and again, uh, over those three months of times, I was trying to kind of justify the fact that, you know, I was innocent in this matter. So that's the background on this end of it. <laughs> what about you, Robin? <laughs> Where were you at? What were you feeling? What led up, leading up to things? So when um, this took place back in October, um, I pretty much kind of left the church um, because I was pissed, to be blunt. <laughs> I was, and I didn't, I didn't think that anybody was would back me up so I just made excuses and you can ask my husband that's my real husband back there <laughs> <laughs> um, I 
made excuses every Sunday. I'll watch it on YouTube. I'll just, you know, who cares if we're late? I don't care. I don't want to hear the singing. I just want to stay home. And I did that for uh, several weeks. So when actually there was other people involved that had been praying for us um, that knew about the situation. And whenever I would, if I saw Jay, because he said the same thing, um, you know, it'd be like, oh, you know, what's up with that person? So two Sundays ago, was it, has it been two weeks now? Yeah. So, uh, so the Sunday prior to pastor calling me, he, I came to church with my husband and I was here and I was in a very dark place. And so I left. Um, <laughs> my little grandson's here, so I, I I was in a really dark place. So um, when I left, I felt even worse because not one person tried to stop me. And of course, you know how women think that every, everybody should know what we're thinking, right? Even if we're not talking out loud. So I left and I got in the truck and um, I just sat there until church was over and then the kids came out. But pastor called me like three days later to talk to me and say, look, Robin, there's some serious things going on here. Um, there's a problem and it's obvious and we need to do the right thing. At first I was very resistant. I said, no, I'm not coming. I'm not going to do this. And when pastor gave me a, an option, um, it wasn't a good option. So, and because I love pastor so much, he's been there for me and my family for a very long time. I think 20 years we've known each other. Wow. Um, but, and I know you're not that old, Pastor, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought, okay, I'll do it for you. And so we hung up and we planned on meeting and we met at Starbucks and they're way more expensive than Dutch Brothers. <laughs> but, so, in the meantime, I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to handle this? What am I going to say? What am I going to do? And by the time it got to the meeting, I got there. I had no ill feelings whatsoever. I hadn't even talked to Jay yet. I had no ill feelings. And uh, sitting across from him, I just looked at him, and I thought, this is my brother. And... I, I, I couldn't, there was nothing else to say. I mean, well, we did talk quite a bit, but there was, it was like, it just happened. And I didn't even have to think about what I was gonna say. And we had a great talk. We forgive each other. And now he's like my second husband. No. <laughs> <laughs> we could uh, scratch that off the YouTube channel. No. Oh, I forgot about that, right? No, but I do. I look at Jay now, and it's like this, this, it's so different. But when I was sitting here looking at him, and I'm like, this is my brother. Mm -hmm. And I love him like my brother. 
it kind of reminds me of my, my <laughs> real brother. But mm -hmm. I seriously, in that brother in Christ, and it's, it's fixed. And it's, there's no reason because I want, I want to show to you guys and my family and my grandkids, forgiveness is a beautiful thing. And if it wasn't for God intervening, and then of course pastor threatening me, but, <laughs> <you know laughs> this would have never happened. So You're supposed to you. leave that part out. <laughs> <laughs> thank you to the church for the people that have been praying for us that had known about this situation. I never would have thought that this would have been the end result. Thank you. Thank you, Robin. Any more you want to share about what God yeah, did I at the meeting? Add, thank you, Robin. That, that's um, amazing testimony. But anyway, I, well, one little thing I wanted to share is I actually happened to be reading in Philippians um, before Robin and I and Scott met, and the verse that continually stuck out to me was Philippians 2, 3, and 4. It says, do nothing out of selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I'd spent so much time over three months trying to defend myself and justify my own actions that I didn't take time to think about Robin. And, and the Lord just communicated to that to me. Um, so much in our conflicts, we think about who's right and who's wrong, but ultimately the bottom line is 1 Corinthians 13, love. Um, and sometimes our own religiosity and our own Christianity can get in the way of loving another person, um, which is, um, so anyway. <laughs> so yeah, um, Robin and I met, it was a wonderful time in the Lord. I wanted to thank uh, Robin and I both we're thinking about Scott because it's a tremendous burden that Scott had on his heart because he cares about all of us as being a shepherd of, of the church. Um, and this is something that he had to carry with him. The other thing I wanted to um, say about all of us together is conflict is not bad. Conflict happens. Um, and if you're married, you definitely know that. Um, if you have brothers and sisters, you definitely know that. So conflict is not something to be... Um, like Scott said, Satan would like us to um, isolate ourselves, and um, but uh, there's restoration because at the end of the day we all meet at the foot of the cross. Um, Christ said it is finished. I've taken care of it, and um, so little steps of faith in terms of moving forward and restoring relationships or mending relationships with people. God provides the power, just like Robin said. She just took the step to come. I took the step to come. God took the step to come. God was the, the instrument. He was the power. He was the reconciliation. So we don't take credit for that. Mm -hmm. So anyway. Amen. Thank you, guys. You know, I think about that. I think about Matthew 18 where Jesus says, wherever two or more are gathered, there I am in the midst. It's a context just like that. He was there, and he overcame the designs of the enemy. And if you're like me, it makes me ask the question, is there somebody I need to go to, some breakdown that I need to bring reconciliation to? And from my perspective, boy, Carolyn and I were praying. I don't like making those phone calls. There's some fear. I had to keep giving back over to the Lord. But we were praying, Lord, do more than we can ask or imagine. And when, when we got together that day, I was prepared. Normally, a pastor in a meeting like that has to really 
be like a can opener opening cans just to get people to talk. All I did was pray. And then I watched them talk for 45 minutes and reconcile. And I praise God. And, and I saw something the following Sunday. That was a Friday. Got here at 830. And this place was more bubbly at 830 than I'd seen it in a long time. And people were talking about the sun's out longer, it's warmer, and that may have played into it. But I believe there was also a deeper root. Something broken in the church had been healed. And, and God was working powerfully. So praise God. And one disclaimer, we did not make them do that. We, we asked them if they wanted to do that. So don't fear if you have your own conflict. That was voluntary. <laughs> But if we've seen anything this morning, we've seen that Jesus is sovereign over the storms without and the storms within. He's at work today. I want to close with a story, then pray. The story about a little girl on a plane was flying and it started to hit a little turbulence. First, just some things shaking, a little bit of noise. And then the heavy stuff, you know, the luggage containers were opening, luggage was falling, and people were clinging to their seats, praying and chanting and all sorts of stuff. In the midst of it, there's a little girl there just playing with her toy, sitting in her seat. And finally, a, an adult, agitated with all that was going on, said, Little girl, how can he sit there so calm in the middle of all this turbulence? You know what she said? She said, Oh, it's easy. My daddy's the pilot. Listen, we have a Heavenly Father who's in control. Whatever storms you're facing, cling to Him. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the testimonies. Lord, uh, they, they powerfully remind us that the same Savior in these historical accounts is alive and well and powerful as ever. I pray for those facing storms without, Lord, that you would help them if they know you as their Savior to experience your presence in a powerful way. If they don't, draw them to trust. And that you'd lead us by your Spirit Show us how you want us to grow in the middle of our storm. And if there's a storm within, Lord, help us bring it to your feet that you would overcome the battle. If there's some way we need to cooperate with you in that, like Jay and Robin did, show us what that is. Help us to know your deep love. Help us to give you our trust and to follow your lead. Lord, even as we take our offering this morning, may it be from super grateful hearts for our King of kings and Lord of lords. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.